Good morning. Kim and I are uh, grateful for the chance to worship with you today. Uh, I first heard about the barn um, when I was on Young Life staff in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and somehow the barn came up in conversation among uh, our staff folks, uh, I'm guessing from Connecticut. I don't really remember the conversation, but you never forget a church named the barn. And, uh, and so when I first met Matt five years ago and he said he pastored the barn, I said, I know that place. Um, I, uh, Kim and I have been uh, in Argyle, New York for the past uh, 33 years. Uh, we've had the privilege of pastoring the Argyle uh, Presbyterian Church. Argyle is a small dairy farming community. Uh, we don't have a traffic light yet, but we're hoping to get one someday. Uh, we have about 3,000 people in 100 square miles. So a little bit different context than Simsbury, Connecticut, a little different context than Springfield, Pennsylvania, uh, where we grew up. Uh, one of the reasons that we have been able to stay there 33 years is that our congregation has generously uh, given us a sabbatical, a three-month sabbatical, every seven years. We've taken four of them now, and those sabbaticals have not only been life-giving for us and for our family, but I also think to the congregation. So I'm excited uh, that you're dipping your feet in the water with this mini sabbatical that Matt's on right now, and uh, we are praying for you, have been praying for you, and Matt and Rachel and, and their family that this would be a really rich time and uh, a growing time for you. Um, in a couple of weeks, Brian Fitzgerald, who is the associate pastor with us in Argyle, will be here uh, to preach. So you're getting a lot of dose of Argyle uh, this summer, and uh, we pray that will be good for you. When a year and a half ago, I was here um, with a group of pastors for a, a clergy retreat that Matt led that was just a couple days before you hosted Presbytery in September 2018. And one of the assignments we had was to go out and find a quiet place to meditate on a passage of Scripture. And I stumbled across uh, this space. And uh, I was sitting here thinking about Scripture and thinking about, I wonder what it would be like to worship in this space. So uh, here's, here's my opportunity um, to experience that. We're continuing today in the sermon series that you're doing in the book of Acts. And we'll be looking at Paul's trial before Governor Felix in Acts 24. Um, if you've been reading along, this section of Acts records a series of five trials the Apostle Paul went through after he was arrested in Jerusalem. The first was an informal trial before the crowd in the temple. Uh, that didn't turn out so well, uh, and so he was sent on to the Sanhedrin. And uh, two weeks ago, Andrew Sharp preached about that trial in Acts 23. And before I go any further, I want to remind you of the two takeaways that Andrew uh, set before you uh, from that sermon. The first was that God's purposes will not be thwarted by our mistakes or others' opposition. God's purposes will not be thwarted by our mistakes or others' opposition. And then secondly, despite our flaws, God works through us. Uh, knowing these truths will help us to live and serve God well. And we're going to see these truths at work in the passage this morning in Acts 24, 
as well as in the rest of our lives. Well, this second trial, as you remember from two weeks ago, didn't turn out so well either. There was a plot to kill Paul. Uh, and so the Roman commander hustled Paul out of town and sent him on to Felix, the governor of Judea. Paul would eventually get the chance to make a defense before Felix's successor, uh, a man by the name of Festus, and then eventually before King Agrippa. For Paul, things just seem to be going from bad to worse. Some of you know what that is like. For Paul, his imprisonment just kept dragging on and on. Weeks turned into months. Months turned into years. He was uh, in prison under Felix alone for two years. And on the surface, it looked like Paul's ministry was a failure. So it's important for us to step back to see the big picture of what's going on here. Back in Acts 21, we read about a prophet by the name of Agabus who warned that Paul would be arrested when he got to Jerusalem. And he did that funny thing where he took Paul's belt and he tied himself up to illustrate his point. Shortly after Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he was, in fact, arrested, and that launched this series of trials. And then while locked up in Jerusalem, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. These trials were God's way of getting Paul to where he wanted him, Rome. So what looked like a bad thing, getting arrested and being locked up for years, was actually part of God's plan to use Paul for his glory. God's purposes will not be thwarted by our mistakes or others' opposition. My goal when I graduated from seminary was to find a Presbyterian church within two hours of Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia was where Kim and I grew up, and they root for the right sports teams there, and we just thought it would be a lot easier um, if we lived within two hours of Philadelphia. And, and in those days, uh, this would have been in the old PCUSA, for those of you who remember those kinds of things, uh, a candidate could um, ask the, the denomination only to send his resume to particular churches. It, you know, it, I, I've often said that the, the matching system was a little bit like a computer matching service. You, uh, you would send a resume in, and you'd put on there things that were important to you, and churches would do the same, and the computer would match you. And I had no confidence in that system. And so every Sunday night, I would call and leave a message. You could request five churches a week, and I would list five churches every Sunday night so that they would get it first thing Monday morning and send out those resumes. I did that for 10 weeks. I sent my resume to 50 different churches, all within two hours of Philadelphia. And then one day I got a call from a church, upstate New York, six hours away. Apparently there had been a computer glitch. And that church, I would say providentially, but been tempted to say accidentally, got my resume. They wanted me to come for an interview, but there was no way I wanted to live in upstate New York. But fortunately, God gave me a mate who is wise. And Kim said, let's go for the interview. <laughs> and she, she said, you need to practice. And, uh, and who knows what God is going to do. And so in March of 1986, the worst time of the year to visit 
upstate New York mud season. We went to Argyle. We fell in love with the people, the community, their vision for the church, and what they needed in a pastor. 33 years later, I am thanking God that his purposes are not thwarted by my plans and ideas. God got me to Argyle. God got Paul to Rome. Where has God gotten you, or where is he getting you so that he can use you in his work? Think about that as we turn to Acts 24 and this third trial before Felix. If you'd like to follow along, the scripture is printed in your bulletin. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to the worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law, and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men ex themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I, have come to, I, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, these, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we're so grateful that you are a God who reveals yourself. You are a God who speaks to us. You are a God who has given us your word. And we confess that sometimes when we come to your word, we're not quite sure what it has to do with us. 
living in this day. And so we ask this morning for your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and minds that we might not only understand this passage, but we might understand how to apply it to our lives. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at three things with you briefly. The charges against Paul, his defense, and then this idea of uh, continuity and discontinuity. But let's look first at the charges against Paul. As in customary in our court system, in case you've never had that experience firsthand, this is how it works, uh, the, uh, the prosecution makes their case first, and then the defense. And so a lawyer by the name of Tertullius presented the Sanhedrin's case against Paul. And he began with what is known in Latin as a compatio benevolenti. Now, if you saw this spelled out, you would probably be able to guess what it was. But once you read Tertullius's introduction, you would know exactly what it was. He said to Felix, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. A capatio benevolenti was an attempt to capture the benevolence of the judge. And Felix was the kind of guy who would have enjoyed this kind of flattery. But everyone there knew that there was little truth to what Tertullius said. Felix was a brutal and ineffective ruler, and the Jews had especially suffered under his rule. There was no profound gratitude on the part of the Jews for Felix. But this wasn't the end of Tertullius' fa playing fast and loose with the truth. He brought three charges against Paul, two which were totally false and one which was at least partially false. First, he accused Paul of being a troublemaker who went, about, who went around stirring up riots. Now, since Felix's main job, his main assignment from Rome was to keep the peace, this was a serious charge. And if convicted on it, Paul would have received a serious sentence, perhaps even death. Second, Tertullius accused Paul of being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. The implication in using the word sect was to imply that the Christians were Jewish heretics. And third, Tertullius accused Paul of trying to desecrate the temple. Now, Felix wouldn't have cared much about these last two charges because they were religious in nature. Uh, but if he could be convinced that Paul was a threat to Rome, Felix might carry out the punishment that the Sanhedrin would prescribe for these last two charges. You remember that this is exactly what happened with Jesus. He was convicted by this same Sanhedrin on made-up charges and sentenced to death. The Jews, however, didn't have the authority under Roman rule to put somebody to death, and so they brought Jesus to Pilate in much the same way that Paul was being brought to Felix. Now, it's hard for me to imagine that Paul wasn't at least a little frightened by the weight of these charges and frustrated by the mischaracterizations. But when he was given the chance, he calmly presented his defense against these charges. Paul, too, began with a Capatio Benevolenti statement, only his was much briefer and true. He said, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. 
To the charge of being a troublemaker, Paul argued that he'd only been in Jerusalem for a few days. He hadn't had time to stir up trouble. He had no desire to stir up trouble, and there was no evidence that he had stirred up trouble. There was a disturbance in the temple while he was there, but that was started by the Jews when they saw him there worshiping. To the charge of being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, Paul pleaded both guilty and not guilty. He admitted that he was a follower of the way, but he disputed Tertullius's implication that it was a heretical sect. In those early days of the church, the Christians didn't have an agreed-upon name, and so they were called the Nazarenes or the way. We'll circle back to this charge in Paul's defense in a minute. And as to the third charge of desecrating the temple, Paul said, I came to Jerusalem to bring gifts for the poor and to present offerings. And I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. In other words, I've come to serve and to worship. And I had fulfilled all the Jewish requirements required of me to be able to be in the temple. In other words, there is no case against me. Now, I want to focus for a minute on Paul's defense against this second charge of being a ringleader for the Nazarene sect. Because this is where I get the title for my sermon, Continuity or Discontinuity. Paul said, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law, and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. The Tertullius and the Sanhedrin argued that Christianity was a break away from Judaism, a heresy. Paul's argument, however, was that the Christian faith was a fulfillment of all the Jews had believed and hoped for. Continuity or discontinuity? Paul was on the continuity side, Tertullius on the discontinuity side. Paul argued that a faithful Jew would embrace Christianity. Tertullius argued that a faithful Jew would reject it. We use a little booklet by John Sartell in our congregation to instruct parents on the meaning of infant baptism. And in that booklet, Tartell says, every gospel doctrine has its roots in the Old Testament. If you want to understand the doctrine of sin, you must begin with Genesis. Or if you would grasp the awesome beauty of the cross, you must read the Pentateuch and the prophets. We especially see this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, which helps us understand how the Old Testament people, places, and practices all pointed towards Jesus. You remember, this was the, the topic on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection where Jesus encounters Cleopas and that other man, and he's talking to them, and he's giving them a little Bible study on what must happen. And Luke comments, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Christian faith wasn't a new religion that began 2,000 years ago, but was an unfolding 
an expansion of the work that God had been doing ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against him in the Garden of Eden. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. As we sing every Christmas, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So what are we to take away from this trial that happened so many years ago of Paul before Felix, the the, uh, Roman governor? Well, first, don't be surprised if being a Christian gets you into trouble. Increasingly, we live in a culture that has rejected biblical values and as a result will reject us. We should be grateful that we had such a good run in this country where the culture appreciated and supported our values. Anybody remember Blue Laws? But now as we drift towards a more uh, first century secular context, we need to learn from these early Christians in the book of Acts how to live and to minister in a more disinterested and sometimes hostile culture. And then second, as Andrew reminded us two weeks ago, nothing can thwart God's purposes. Ever since God told the serpent in the Garden of Eden that the woman's offspring would crush his head, God has been at work to rescue and restore sinners like you and me. Although there may be an arrest by the Jewish leaders and flawed plans by a young seminary student, Although there may be illnesses, broken marriages, failed jobs, troubled children, although there may be mistakes and opposition, nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. And that truth should give us great courage as we face the opportunities and the challenges of our lives this week. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for Paul's faithfulness and his courage and his willingness to go to Jerusalem even though he knew from the prophet that he would be arrested there. And while he was in prison, he wrote letters that we read today that encourage us and instruct us. And while he was in prison, he bore witness to those around him, of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church continues to live off that teaching today. And we're so grateful. And we're grateful, Lord, that you used his imprisonment, those trials to get him to Rome. Likewise, we are grateful for the twists and turns in our lives. Uh, The ways that you've led, sometimes the ways that have seemed like setbacks, Uh, or disappointments even, that you've used to get us into the position physically and spiritually and emotionally to be able to be your servants. We pray this in Christ's name.